Turn with me again this morning to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'll be reading only two verses, verse 11 and 12. Just to set this up in our last study, we examine the ten separate commands that James packs into only four verses as a means of conveying to us how we might avoid being friends of the world and enemies of God. I'm not going to go over those ten commands this morning, but I would encourage you, as I always do, if you're able to go to Sermon Audio and listen to that message, uh, I hope you do that. Here in verses 11 and 12, James moves on from what amounts to a parenthetical exhortation concerning the dangers of cozying up to the world and becoming enemies of God. And he returns to his previous discussion regarding the dangers associated with the tongue. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Now, given the immediate context, what James is pointing out here is that the one who is committed to humbly submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, cleansing his hands, purifying his heart, mourning and weeping over his sin, such a one will resist the urge to speak against his brother. This phrase that's translated as speak against is a single word in the Greek, and it refers to either speaking down to someone in a hostile or reviling way or talking about someone in such a way as to slander them or defame them. Given that James uses the words brethren and brother three times in this passage, it's clear that he's referring to the tendency that is all too common in the church. Brothers and sisters, even in the local church, are prone to condemn, gossip about one another, backbite one another, slander one another. In Jesus' high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, you'll recall him praying in verse 21 that we may all be one even as the Father was in him and he in the Father, that we may also be in them. Why? Why is it so important that all of us be one in the Lord. Well, it's important because as we read further, so that the world may believe that Christ was sent from the Father. One of the most important ways for us to prove that we are His and He is ours. In the midst of a lost and dying world, is to consistently demonstrate the tremendous love that we have for one another. And I'll say this too. If the world sees 
so much turmoil, so much strife, so much infighting and quarreling, so much gossip, so much slander, so much backbiting among the people of God who are supposed to love one another, how are they ever going to understand that we love them? I've said before, I'll say it again, one of the primary reasons that many in the church today are labeled as hypocrites is because it's true. I know it's hard to hear when people say, the reason I don't attend a local church, the reason I don't believe in the church is because the church is nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. It's true. How do I know it's true? I know because we do the very things that we're commanded in Scripture not to do. If there's one way for you and me to be believed by the outside world, the least that we can do is demonstrate our love for one another. A love that's been shed abroad in our hearts by Christ himself. A love that recognizes that we only love because he first loved us. A love that we understand needs to grow. It needs to be cultivated. It needs to be guarded. Especially against all of these other tendencies that we have to go the opposite way. Isn't this what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35? He said to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this... What? Your love for each other. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But what happens when this love begins to wane? What happens when, in typical worldly fashion, we begin speaking ill of, we begin gossiping, backbiting, and slandering one another? Well, when that happens, sadly... We not only do a great deal of harm to our witness, but we also cast doubt on the radical transformation that accompanies our salvation. If we believe, and we should, if we believe what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, that old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new, then we need to ensure that we're behaving in accordance with our new nature in all things. We're to constantly be putting to death the old man and his ways. And again, one of the most practical ways that you can do this, one of the easiest ways to do this is just to love one another. It doesn't cost you anything. As a matter of fact, not loving one another costs you a great deal. It can cause you to lose sleep at night. It can cause you to be more preoccupied with what others are doing than focusing on yourself. It can sully your witness, as I've said. It can do all kinds of things. Loving one another doesn't cost anything. And love each other not only in word, but in deed. Get in the habit of doing for others. Get in the habit of demonstrating the love that you say you have for them. Before long... This habit will be evident to all. What a glorious testimony it would be for people to say of you. You know, they're short in a lot of areas. 
you know, they might at times be a few fries short of a happy meal. But man, do they love. Don't you want to be known as a lover of souls? A lover of one another? The sad reality, though, is more people are better known for just the opposite. And it's sad. That shouldn't be in the body of Christ. Speaking against one another in the way that James describes is not only inconsistent with our profession as believers, but this is why there's so many reminders and exhortations throughout Scripture to avoid this particular sinful behavior. The Scriptures speak voluminously about the dangers of using our tongues to attack other people, especially those of the household of faith. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In Proverbs 10, 18, we're told, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Proverbs 16, 10, or 16, 28, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 20, verse 19, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. Psalm 34, 13, we're told, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 34, 13. No, I've just read that. James chapter 3. You can read the whole chapter. Remember, that whole chapter is about the dangers of using your tongue in a way that is inappropriate for believers. Back in our uh, study of James chapter 3, you recall that I brought a couple of passages to bear on this. Ephesians 4.29, remember what Paul writes there. He says, let no unwholesome speech come from your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Then in verses 31 and 32, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, he says, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul writes, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. To the Corinthians, again, in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Paul expressed his fear that when he visited them, he might not like what he saw. He was worried about the Corinthians. They had so many bad habits, and among those bad habits was their tendency to fight among themselves, to be jealous of one another, to slander one another, to gossip about one another. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, he says that the reason he's worried is because perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder among them. In Romans 1, 29 and 30, you know what Romans 1 talks about. In Romans 1, Paul lists some of the most egregious sins imaginable. And right there in the midst of them is what? Gossip and slander. Wait a minute, Pastor, are you suggesting that in addition to all those other heinous sins that Paul mentions there, that gossip and slander are on an equal par? Yes, yes. In Titus 3, 1 and 2, 
Paul encourages Titus to remind those under his own pastoral care to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You get the idea. As one commentator noted, God hates all sin, but there are a few sins that are constantly and strongly condemned by Scripture. Condemning others, criticizing, backbiting, gossiping, speaking evil, and talking about others are sins that Scripture never lets up on. And it's true. Another commentator said, James is suggesting that Christians who speak against their brothers or sisters in Christ include themselves in that biblical register of rebellious mumblers, moaning grumblers, deceitful slanderers, crushing insulters, and wicked slanderers. We all have a problem with our tongues. And here's the thing. As I've pointed out before, it doesn't matter how sincere your motives might be in talking about others. Folks, we know how this works. You go to somebody and you say, you know, I'm about to tell you something and I mean it in love. Or please don't get me wrong when I say this about so-and-so. Please don't misunderstand my motives. I'm not trying to tear so-and-so down and then they systematically tear so-and-so down. I don't mean to gossip. Folks, it doesn't matter how you preface it. If your intention is to talk about somebody, don't do it. Just don't do it. Isn't it much better to go to your brother or sister and confront them directly? It is. Doesn't that sound vaguely scriptural? Matthew 18, 15 and following. The only reason you would have to talk down either to or talk about someone is if you perceive that they've been overtaken in a fault. That there's something worthy of your gossip or your slander. If that's the case... Jesus says quite clearly in Matthew 18, 15, if you find your brother overtaken in a fault, go to them. I've said before, I'll say it again, most church discipline that happens in this church at least, most of us are never aware of. Why? Because it's taken care of at that foundational level. If I sense that Steve has wronged me or anyone else, in a certain sense, if he's sinned and I don't quite understand that, my duty is to go to Steve. Steve, explain this to me. Because right now there's a wedge between us. Explain this to me. Help me understand. Now, it could be that at that point, Steve says, you know, I, yeah, guilty as charged. Please forgive me. What does Matthew 18 say? I want him back. Doesn't go any further. Even if it goes to the second step, you're to take two or three with you so that on the corroboration of more than one person, you can make this thing certain. And again, if they repent, what have you done? You've won your brother or sister back. Doesn't go any further. Typically, though, and I'd like to say I'm not intentionally poking anyone in the eye, but I am. Typically, people come to me as the pastor or one of the other pastors. And I say, how can I help you? 
And they say, Pastor, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did to me. You wouldn't believe what so-and-so said to me. Well, first of all, I would believe it because I know people. It's the human condition. Second of all, I'm here to tell you, if you come to me with that, my next words to you will be, get out of my office. Not in an unloving way. Maybe I'll preface that with, you can stay if you want, but we're not talking about this. If you're insistent on talking about another brother or sister, and you haven't gone to them to try to smooth all of this out, you have no business in here talking to me about it. You guys need to know that up front. I will not entertain that. I simply won't. And the times that I have, some of you can probably think, well, you have when I came to you that one time. I'm guilty as well. How about let's help one another not sin? <laughs> right? By not bringing it to me, you might be preventing me from enjoying uh, your sin. Now notice very carefully that in addition to speaking against one another, James also uses another verb in his exhortation. Not only are we to not speak against one another, but we're also not to judge one another. Now you need to understand the word judge as James uses it here. He uses this to describe how we have a tendency to insert ourselves in the life of others as judge, jury, and executioner. The word is most often used to refer to a judge in a courtroom who has the power to either release or condemn someone on trial. It's the same uh, word that Jesus uses in Luke 6.37 where he famously says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Now, let me clarify this for those of you who might not be as clear on this principle as you should be. Most of you have no doubt heard, either from unbelievers or from professing believers, you've probably heard people say that it's wrong to challenge one another at any time about anything. And they'll throw up that favorite mantra, judge not lest ye be judged. If there was ever a passage taken more wildly out of context than that, I don't know what it is. Why do I say that? Because while it's true that we're not to serve as anyone's judge, jury, and executioner, while you and I don't have the power to condemn someone to hell for what they've done or said about us, there still is a sense in which we are expected to be judges. We are expected to exercise discernment. We are expected to be able to examine a situation and determine whether it's right or whether it's wrong. It's important that we understand that. Jesus says as much in John 7, 24, doesn't he? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's a direct command. Judge. When Jesus says of false teachers in Matthew 7, 19 and 20, every tree that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then by their fruit you will know them. Does that not imply that we're to be fruit inspectors? We are. 
So when someone claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, and yet their lifestyle simply doesn't align with their profession, it's our responsibility to exercise proper righteous judgment, discernment, evaluation, and then confront them in love about the inconsistencies between their claim and their conduct. There's nothing more unloving than leaving someone in sin. The most loving thing you can do is come alongside someone in love and say, you know, there's just something not right here about this situation. Let me remind you what the Word of God says about this thing. And that's a point too. Make sure that when you judge righteously, that you're judging according to the standards set forth in God's word and not your own legalistic pharisaical standards. That'll cause a lot of division in the church as well. When someone sets themselves up as an expert on what God expects from us and then they use all kinds of extra biblical or unbiblical uh, things to call a person to account. Don't do that. As I've said before, I come from a a background, it's kind of really a checkered past, talking about my past churches. And, you know, at one time I was a charismatic, I was an independent fundamental Baptist at some point. I remember very well going into people's homes and, and looking at their, I guess back then it would be their VHS tape collection. Oh, stop, Mark. You know, you know what I'm talking about or their magazines and calling them on the carpet for having magazines that I had deemed were inappropriate. Well, I mean, there are certain guidelines that should be followed. No, they're not those kind of magazines. I mean, there are certain magazines that, yeah, you should call a brother or sister out and say, what are you doing with this? But I don't think car and driver should be one of those simply because Maybe there's an ad with a picture of a woman in it that is scantily clad, I don't, whatever the case might be. We've got to be very careful that we take the Word of God and overlay it onto the situation as opposed to making up our own rules, making up our own expectations. I remember in a church we were at in Germany, Danny, you remember this very well. You know, if your car was, was parked in front of a movie theater and there was anything on the marquee other than a G rating, you had no business there, and you would be disciplined for that, right? Let's not do that. Make sure that you're using right judgment. What does that mean? It means that you're appealing to the Word of God alone as the arbiter of those things. Now, there might be cases where people do things that are just unwise. Those are great conversations as well, are they not? You know, iron sharpens iron. I might not be accusing you of sin, but I might be seeing that you're doing some things that are reckless, some things that are foolish, some things that might give the impression of sin to weaker brethren. Those things ought to be discussed as well. Again, it's all about using right judgment, being fruit inspectors. When we allow new members into the church, all of us are required to exercise our judgment to do what? to discern whether or not they are who they say they are. We are expected, 
especially as pastors, to guard a regenerate church membership. We don't have people join this church and declare them to be members in good standing when they have all kinds of sin going on in their lives. So the membership process is one where we're going to talk to you, we're going to try to find out as much about you as we can, and then we're going to make a judgment call as to whether or not you actually become a member of the church. The kind of judgment that James is warning his readers to avoid is the superficial, hypocritical, harsh, self-righteous judgment that's so often used to justify our slander, our gossip, and our hateful attitudes toward others. So what reason does James give for our not speaking against or our unfairly judging our brothers and sisters? He says that the one who does so speaks against the law and judges the law. Now stop there. What does that mean? Well, it's simple. James is reminding us that God's law, which, by the way, as you know, is simply another word for the whole of the word of God. He's simply reminding us that God's word has already demonstrated time and time again what God expects of us who believe. And among the many things that we are taught, as we've already noted, God prohibits gossip, slander, backbiting, etc. among those in whom his spirit dwells. For us to ignore the scriptures and the scriptures' repeated exhortations, reminders, prohibitions in this regard, it's really the equivalent of saying to God, I've looked into your law, I've looked into your word, and I find that it's unacceptable in light of what I deem to be a better way. That's what James is warning against. Don't take it upon yourself to judge people according to your own self-righteous standards, your own pharisaical standards, your own unfair requirements of them. Instead, judge rightly using the word of God because when you resort to using your own means to judge people, you're stepping outside of the word of God and you're effectively saying to God, your word is not enough. I need to add to it or take away from it in order to make the point I want to make. James says, don't do that. Don't even think to do that. As James goes on to say at the end of verse 11, at that point, if we stand in judgment of the law, we're no longer doers of the law itself, but we're judges of it. Here's the thing. When we assume that posture not only are we guilty at that point of establishing our own law that's, that's at odds with God's law, we're still we're guilty of assuming the role of God himself. Think about it this way. When you reject what God has said and you insert your own standards of righteousness in the place of the word, you are also usurping God's role as well. Does that make sense? And again, James says, don't do that. This is why he's quick to remind us in verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And again, in the context there, the judgment that was going on was judgment relative to one's salvation. And are we not guilty of that sometimes? 
Think about this. How many people have you been guilty of writing off in your own life as unsavable, as irredeemable? Throwaways. Oh, it's not even possible that God would save that person or that other person. Look at what they've done. Now, how do I know this? I know this because Jeffrey Dahmer. Can you think of a name that's more harrowing in your mind than Jeffrey Dahmer? I'm not going to tell you everything he did. There's kids here. But it was horrendous. Unthinkable. Unspeakable. At the end of his life in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole evangelical world said, Amen. No. What did you hear? You heard people saying, it's just a ruse. A ruse, the man serving a life sentence. Right? Was he executed? I think. Murdered in prison. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, humanly speaking, he got what was coming to him by God's righteous judgment. But here's the thing. The moment I heard that Jeffrey Dahmer had received Christ, my initial response, you know, if the angels are rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who is saved, why do we not rejoice in like manner? I think it was Carla Faye Tucker, the modern day Lizzie Borden, if you know what that's all about. She also made a profession of faith and everybody in the world, well, not everybody, but most people within evangelicalism were like, yeah, right. That's judgment. You're judging that her profession of faith in the same Lord Jesus that you have a profession of faith in, you're judging, number one, that you're better than she is. And you're judging that you know better than God. Well, if I were God, I'd never save her. Well, thank God you're not God. You know what the most humbling thing is? The most humbling thing is not to say that of others. The most humbling thing to say is, if I were God, I'd never save me. And praise God, I'm not God. Because he did. And he has. And he is. And he will. Amen? This is what made me just physically ill about all the comments in social media about whatever was going on in Asbury. Nobody knows what went on at Asbury or Sanford where Allison's betrothed graduated. He reported to me that there was a revival breaking out even at Sanford University and other places. You heard about it. I've never heard more hateful, more cynical language than online from reform folk talking about how that doesn't line up with what we should expect of revival. Here's the thing, folks. God does what he does, when he does it, how he chooses to do it. And if there's one person that was saved from being at Asbury, I've talked about the 70s. How many of you were saved in the 70s? We're a dying breed, brother. (laughs) That's sad. (laughs) 
When I started in the ministry, I could ask that question, and almost every hand would go up. The 70s were crazy. If you didn't live through the 70s, you have no idea what I'm talking about. The 70s was crazy town. The Lord started something on the West Coast, Costa Mesa, California, in the most unlikely of places, with a man whose doctrine was not perfect, with a bunch of hippies who themselves were not perfect, and the ridicule that was foisted on these hippies who had made a profession of faith. Well, if you made a real profession of faith, you wouldn't be a hippie anymore. If you made a real profession of faith, then you'd stop doing some of the things that you're doing. Most of them did, by the way, who were saved. They cleaned up their act. I've known hundreds of them. And yet there are people even today who will say that was nothing. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along. Why? Because that's not the way I would expect God to do something like that. Well, you wouldn't expect God to talk through a donkey either, would you? (laughs) Once again, I have no idea where I'm at here. (laughs) Here's the thing. Only God truly knows a person. You don't. And not only that, only God knows what awaits each person in terms of heaven or hell because he has sovereignly ordained their eternal destiny. Just as an important aside here, you know, whether intentional or not, those who promote the idea that man is the decider of his own eternal fate, those who promote the idea that salvation is something that man can simply choose to partake of or ignore, they're actually guilty of this same sin. They're allowing their own law, that is their own way of thinking, to trump God's clearly revealed way of doing things. But as James clearly says here, there's only one lawgiver and judge. And who is that? It's the one who is able to save and to destroy. Based on what? Based on our input? Based on our decisions? Based on our demands for how we think God should operate? No. Everything in the entire created realm is sovereignly controlled by the only one whose opinion matters. By the only one who is able to judge us because he wrote the very laws that we're expected to obey under penalty of death. The only one who's able to save and to destroy as he and he alone sees fit. I'll say it again. I said it this morning in the first hour. It needs to be said over and over again because people's soteriology, that is their doctrine of salvation, has become so horribly skewed by modern evangelicalism. We need to understand that any and all claims that God depends on sinful man to act, that God is not capable of judging us fairly in all things, or that his law is not perfect in every way, That is the equivalent of our insisting that we know better and that we would be much better at being God than he is. 
This is the exact argument that Paul's fighting against in Romans 9 when he says, who you will say to me, if God's made me like this, why does he still find fault? And Paul says very simply, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing formed say to the one who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the same right over the same lump of clay to make one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for, for dishonorable use? What's Paul saying there? It's him, not you. More scriptures. Even Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32:39, God says, "See now that I, I am he, and there is no god besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is none who can deliver from my hand." In Isaiah 43:13, he says, even from eternity, I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it?" And if you think for a minute that God has sovereignly ordained all things whatsoever shall come to pass, including your salvation and mine, then who can add anything to that or take anything away from that? No one. He has declared it and it will be so. Psalm 115.3, the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42. Remember, go back to Job 38 and you'll see, beginning at uh, verse 1, God appears to Job in, in a whirlwind and he says, Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? In other words, Job, you think you understand me. You and your friends think that you understand my dealings. You think you understand who I am. He says, gird up your loins and take it like a man because I'm about to take you on a road trip. He says, where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? By the time you get to Job chapter 42, Job is humbled to the core. By God's testifying to his own sovereignty. And he says, I know. Finally, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, if you've ordained it. It will be. Remember, I, I've said before about this whole revival thing, whatever it is, I don't. I, well, don't use the word revival, Pastor. OK, I won't use the word revival. Whatever it is that's causing people to sing praises to my Lord and Savior, I'm glad for it. Whatever it is that's gathering our young people in the decay that we see in the world today and causing them to pray and to shout out and to sing praises to the Lord, I'm happy for that. And I'll always be happy for those things. Even though I might not understand where they're happening, why they're happening, who's behind it all. I know the Lord's behind it in the end anyway. I've said during this whole time that I'm on team Gamaliel. Remember what Gamaliel's counsel was with regard to this movement called the way? 
Christianity was just getting its push after the day of Pentecost. People were going nuts about this Jesus as Messiah. Revival was clearly sweeping the land among Jews and Gentiles alike. Gamaliel's in the council where all this is being talked about. And Gamaliel says, let me tell you something. He says, if this is of man, it will fade away. Nothing will come of it. But if it's of God, don't you dare try to stop it. Lest you find yourself fighting against God. I'd be very careful before I spoke out. Be discerning, yes. We just talked about that. Be discerning to the extent that you can be discerning. Look for fruit. Encourage some of these young people who are affected by all that's going on in this regard. Encourage them to find good local churches where they can grow. We expect them to be grown immediately. I even heard one guy online say, well, I talked to one of these guys who claims that the Lord saved him. He couldn't define the doctrine of election." When I was first saved, probably for the first 15 years I was saved. If you were to come to me and say, what's election? I'd say, well, that happens every four years for president and every two years for Congress. I didn't have a clue until the Lord chose to reveal that to me. Can we not give others the benefit of the doubt? Love believes all things. Hopes all things. Should we not exercise that same love? Toward those who might very well be our little brothers and little sisters in Christ. I'm not saying be gullible. There's a difference. But don't stand in the position of God himself. And make these grandiose declarations. This was a real revival. That was not. You don't know that. You really sound foolish when you do that. Going back to Romans 9, does Paul not also say, then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills? Remember the doxology at the end of Jude where we read in verses 24 and 25, now to him who is able. What does that imply about you and me? That we're not? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's my prayer for whatever's going on in this world that I don't understand. To him who is able. And I would add to that, Lord, I pray that you're willing. you and you alone are able, I pray that you'll do that in the hearts of my fellow image bearers of God. It's with these truths in mind that James warns us against appointing ourselves as judges over our brothers and sisters, which is why, again, he asks at the end of verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? A clearer way of expressing James's question here would be, who in the world do you think you are sitting in condemnation of others as if you were God? 
Notice carefully that James is up the stakes. Seamlessly, he's transitioned from talking about the brethren, that is your brothers and sisters in Christ, to issuing the same warning with regard to our neighbor. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that we're in no position not only to not to judge our brothers and sisters, we're in no position to judge anyone. Anyone under condemnation. Now, who's our neighbor? Well, if you're particularly on the ball this morning, you're probably thinking of Luke chapter 10. Go there, Luke chapter 10. In verse 25, we're told that a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, asking him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's almost like the question posed by the rich young ruler. Typical Jewish fashion, what should I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? That's true of all works-based salvation concepts and Jesus said to him what's written in the law how does it read to you the man answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself Jesus responded saying you have answered correctly do this and you will live as you know or should know what the lawyer had done was he had taken the two tables of the law and he had spoken of the first table the first four commandments are our responsibility toward God the remaining six commandments talk about our responsibility to one another our neighbors so when Jesus said you have answered correctly do this and you will live He's simply saying that if the man truly believed that he was able to obey God's entire law perfectly, remember, even if you fail at one point, you've failed at the whole thing. If he were able to do that perfectly, he himself would be perfect. But just to make sure that he was tracking, the lawyer had one remaining question, verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, the lawyer was likely about to respond by saying something similar to the rich young ruler. He was probably about to respond, well and good, I've loved God completely, I've loved my neighbor as I love myself, but the lawyer's problem is obvious. By neighbor, the lawyer had assumed that the law was referring to his fellow Jews. That's the classic Jewish interpretation. Those of like mind who lived in the same neighborhood and no doubt attended the same synagogue as he did. You know, the way we use the word neighbor. The guy next door. The guy I'm familiar with. The guy that I share things in common with. Surely, Jesus wasn't suggesting what the lawyer feared he might be suggesting. Surely, Jesus didn't expect him to love Gentiles too, did he? See, this is the whole tenor of the conversation. The lawyer knows something's up. Jesus had that uncanny way of presenting truth in such a way as to make you doubt whether or not you actually believe what you said you believed. Right? He did it constantly. Just read the Gospels and time and time again, Jesus is saying, have you not heard it said? Is it not written? Things that were 
easy to understand on the surface, but Jesus always has that one little hook, that one little thing to convince you you're not as bright as you think you are. In this case, this lawyer, being a lawyer, I, he's assuming Jesus is up to something. Surely you're not suggesting that I love those people too. By neighbor, you're surely not referring to people that I don't get along with now. And how did Jesus respond? How do we know that this is the case? Well, read on at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man, which most commentators agree was a Jewish man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, of all people, a Samaritan, a mongrel, a drag of society, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that our neighbor is actually any of our fellow human beings. He's referring to all image bearers of the Lord God himself. So when James asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? The implication is that we have no right to judge anyone at any time, period. At least not in the way that God judges. So let's say for the sake of argument that you occasionally fall into this particular sin. Anybody here willing to admit that? I mean, I can probably just mention the name Joe Biden and people automatically think imprecatory thoughts, right? I don't mean that to be funny. You know, I mean, I mean that because we have our certain ways of viewing other people who are so much different than we are and what we believe and who we who we uh, are in Christ and what we stand for in terms of the truth, right? That we just can't imagine that God would do anything but judge that person. And so we're going to jump on the bandwagon and we're going to judge him too. Stop it. Even the president or fill in the blank with the most reviled person you can imagine. Even that person is an image bearer of God and as long as that heart is still beating in his or her chest, as long as they are still breathing, they are savable. You know, don't take the hyper-Calvinistic position and say, well, not if they're not God's elect, they're not savable. Stop it. You don't know if they are or not. You don't walk up to people and say, are you one of God's elect? Walk up to an unbeliever and ask him that. Are you one of God's elect? They don't know. What do you do? Give them the gospel. You tell them lovingly and carefully, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. 
I'm praying that God would save you from yourself, that God would save you from his eternal wrath and draw you to himself. Folks, that's the simplest expression of the gospel you can give anybody. So if we are occasionally guilty of this, and we are, how do we ensure that we don't become repeat offenders? Well, the first step is to use our tongue in a way that consistently honors the Lord. And we do that. And we're only able to do that when we realize that our problem is not a tongue problem. Our problem is a heart problem. There's one predominant sin that causes this whole mess. And what is that? It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of pride. And James obviously knows this, doesn't he? This is why in the verses leading up to our text this morning, he's made the point to say things like in verse 6 where he says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The kind of pride that causes us to berate or belittle others just so that we can elevate ourselves is simply not characteristic of the genuine believer. Notice that I didn't say, if you're doing this, you're not a genuine believer. I'm saying if you're doing this, stop doing it and prove yourself to be one in whom the Spirit dwells. Not only does it demonstrate that we're lacking in terms of the humility that should characterize us, but it's also an indication that we lack the kind of love that we're commanded to have for one another. I believe the Apostle John expressed this most clearly when he said in 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21, if a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? He goes on to say, in this commandment we have from him that he who loves God loves his brother also. If we genuinely love God, then it will simply not be possible for us to show any kind of disdain for our brothers and sisters. MacArthur's helpful here. He said, If I see my fellow Christians as God's beloved children for whom the Savior died and for whom he really has planned eternity, if I see my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as those who are eternally the loved ones of Jesus Christ and the beloved of God, if I see them as my brothers and sisters, as my fellow Christians to be protected and forgiven and nurtured and cared for, that's going to control how I talk about them. He says, do you understand that? So I control slander by not keeping my lips sealed. I control slander by keeping my thoughts right. The minute the thought comes into your mind to talk about someone, to talk down to someone, to belittle them, to berate them, to judge them unfairly, the minute that thought enters your mind, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And again, don't come to my office and want to talk 
about so-and-so without having gone to... Now, there might be a time where you and so-and-so might need to come into the office, and we'll, I'll act as an arbitrator, and we'll, we'll sit there, and I'll watch you guys give each other wall-to-wall counseling as, you know, as much as need be until we get it resolved. I'm not afraid of doing that, but don't come to me and tell me something about someone that you've not confronted them with. It's ugly. And again, quite frankly, I, I don't have a stomach for it. I, I, can't, I can't do that. The sin of pride tells us that we're better than others. Humility, on the other hand, admits that who and what we are is by the grace of God alone. Pride tells us that we're somebody. Humility forces us to concede that we're nobody. If you see yourself as anything other than a sinner saved by God's grace, you've missed the point. I would encourage all of us to take James' inspired counsel to heart here. Don't speak against one another. Don't judge one another harshly, unrighteously. Because in so doing, not only is it just wrong, not only is it just tacky to do that, but it really is to put your place, put yourself in the place of God to assume that you have the power to judge another person. Might God help us all to guard our tongues. Might God make us more inclined to go to one another. And might our testimony in doing these things the way God has prescribed for us to do them, might our testimony be an example to those unbelievers in our midst? If you're here without Christ this morning, I hope that what you recognize based upon your being here this morning, and I hope you'll hang out for our meal afterwards down in the fellowship hall and enjoy some fellowship with us. Even if you're an unbeliever, I hope that what's sufficiently impressed on your mind is that we love you. But at the same time, we desire God's best for you, which is found only in his son. Might God be pleased to draw you to himself if he's not done so already. And again, might God receive all the glory for what he has so graciously done in those of us who do know him also for what he can and will do for any who call upon him.